Sunday's experts Always know what's best Always tell you what you should have done Monday's experts it is crisis time at Sporting Chance. Footy's cooked, or so we're being told. We're going to tackle that question, but before we try, we want to arrive at a consensus about what Australian rules football at the elite level should look like. What exactly is good? And once we know what good is, we can perhaps talk about whether footy is actually good, whether it's heaps good, or whether it's just jolly bollocks. Elsewhere, the VFLW kicked off and the Tigers and the Eagles look poised for a round nine smackdown at Optus Stadium. And our book club this evening will centre around the new philosopher who dropped their latest issue all about the concept and meaning of play. The collection of essays raises questions about the very prominence and meaning of sport in our lives. And we're going to dissect it. And for the hour that we're talking, we hope you'll be able to decide if an hour of play is worth more than the value of this conversation. As ever, I am joined by the best role player this country has seen since Eric Banner, Gordon Hunter-Meredith. Welcome. Well, that's high praise. Don't get used to it. No, no, never will. Never to expect that. But yes, it is. It's an exciting week in football. Sporting chance of bringing us the positivity. I mean, is it exciting? It is exciting. I'm not excited about all this, this talk of doomsday. It's like the apocalypse. Because we're not going to talk about doomsday. Uh, we're we? going we're we're to see the doomsday. We're going to raise it that the uh, sky is falling. We're going to tell that little bird that told everyone else that it was that it's not. And so we really... go back to the messenger and say, actually, she's heaps good, like muffin platonic. And we're looking at the sun that doesn't exist out the window because it's evening. Correct. Yeah, oh. lovely. So footy thoughts to start off with. Uh, VFLW started on the weekend. Did you catch any of this? Or did I, you... did, I did not catch it. I did not really even hear about it. Mm. The only way that I actually got across it was I followed plenty of AFLW stars on Instagram. None of them actually played, apparently. No. Um, they all just Instagrammed VFLW moments. Yeah. Behind the scenes stuff, stuff in the stuff in the change rooms, singing the song, warming up, all that kind of stuff. So I, I knew it was on when it was happening, but I didn't know, know about it beforehand. And yeah, a, a lot of the star players and all these player movements that have caused controversy in inverted commas throughout the uh, preseason had no effect because none of them played. It's a little bit bizarre because... This was a conversation, or sorry, a competition where the lists were coming out like four days before the first game. It was just completely unprecedented. And you only had to kind of look at the Darabin team on the weekend to just be like, this is totally ceased to be what it once was. Darabin, for the record, got absolutely spanked by the NT Thunder 12-14-86-5-2-32. Of which not many of the NT Thunder players actually come from the Northern Territory. No, most of them, and this has been probably the topic of contention out of the weekend, was the fact that they are essentially the Adelaide Crows NT contingent playing for the NT Thunder. Um, Darabin pretty much rolled no one out. Hannah Mouncey was the biggest name that played for them. Like, And you look at their team sheet and there's none of the Vessios and the Daisy Pierces. Daisy Pierce has actually said that she will be having the season off. Taylor Harris, Moana Hope, Jess Hosking, Lily Mithen, Alicia Newman and Kirsty Lamb are all yet to announce what clubs they're actually playing for. Which is good um, before, you know, you know, before round two. Yeah, so it's clearly a system of organisation that we're dealing with. And there were some rogue ones that came out, like Emma King heading to Richmond, which is strange. Mm. Um, but anyway, yeah, there's a bit of that. And I guess there's two kind of takes here. My first hot tip is that I think the NT team will actually win this competition. Based purely on the fact that they're, they're the only team that has continuity? Like, no, just... But yeah, I mean, I think they have, like, the strongest, consistent group of AFLW players. But Darabin coach Chris Scott came out after the game and said that this is VFLW. I don't know what the Northern Territory has got to do with it. What are they doing in our league? Like, look, on, on face value, valid point. Quite quite bizarre. Um, I think it's a bit of a watch this space because on the weekend, if you looked at their best players, there was Rihanna Metcalf and there was Emma Swanson, obviously, of GWS and there was Chelsea Randall, um, Sophie Armistead. So there's a very strong Adelaide contingent and I think that the makeup of this competition is just flat out weird at the moment. Like, no one really knows who's putting what out. Like, Richmond beat the Bulldogs by 30-odd, 40-odd points. And mm. They didn't kick a goal, the Bulldogs, and it's like, sorry, how when you have your AFLW players available and it's, yeah, it's mad. Like, so yeah, no one really knows what's going to happen. If you're a betting man, I would bet on the Thunder or not bet. It's like Melbourne Uni and Darabin, who are the traditional powerhouses, both got spanked on the weekend. And I think that kind of gives you an idea that this will be quite unusual. And really there's no, you could basically make an argument that Darabin are the only team that played in this competition that is playing in it again. Because everyone else has been through 
like the, the Spurs have ceased to be the Spurs and they are now the Bulldogs and the Southern Saints the, sorry the Saints have ceased to be the Saints and they're now the St Kilda team and so basically everyone is new except Darabin who have mm. lost a contingent of players Melbourne Uni are now heavily aligned with North Melbourne which again was something they've been progressing towards so where it all ends up we don't know the only thing that is probably worth noting is that they can have as many AFLW players on the list as they want but they can only play 12 of them in one game and that may be something that at the end of the season is pushed depending on where teams end up but at the moment everyone that played AFLW is still a bit like no I'd quite like a bit more time off mm. um, and fair enough too because yeah especially for the likes of Daisy Pierce and stuff they've had a lot of back to back to back to back seasons well she so. essentially said that she played three seasons in two years mm. and I kind of have sympathy for that I, I think it will be interesting to see whether that has any impact on how some of the girls that miss out start next year but I highly doubt it will to be honest, particularly in the case of Daisy. Like, I don't think she's going to stop being elite just because she hasn't played for a few weeks. Like, she'll pick it up like like that and she'll probably be better for the rest. Men's footy, did you pick any of this up? Plenty, plenty, plenty. Where you want to head to first when it comes to the round that was? Well, the confession from, from me this week is that I didn't watch a single game of men's Australian rules football. Wow. Yeah, I watched snippets at best. It's part of AFL and Crisis. Have you lost interest? No, I haven't. I haven't lost. Well, Have actually. Have you lost the love of the game? Like, didn't you? My, my state as a Richmond supporter has changed. I said this last week. I was being tattooed while we were playing and that would never have happened That's before the Premiership. That's very complacent. It would never have happened before the Premiership. And as it was, I kind of was barely even remembering to check the scores. Like, we're that good. I live in a parallel universe. Well, we never lose. In fact, the, the worst thing about the weekend is Richmond had four teams that went on the park and we did manage to lose, which is unusual. Really unusual. Because the girls won, I think the wheelchair team won. Yep. And I think our VFL boys lost from a kick after the siren. More about kicks after the siren and dubious results later. Other games of interest, I think, is the yo-yo or the uh, juxtaposition between the ultra-clustered, low-scoring, inverted commas, slogfest that was the Kangaroos versus Sydney, mm. which actually, you know, the internet blew up, Twitter blew up, everyone was loving it, everyone was loving the upset, everyone was loving the contestion, everyone was loving the contest and the battle and the tackles, all the things that apparently fans hate, everyone actually loved. So I, I don't know whether the crisis merchants out there, all 12 of them, want to just you know jump on Twitter sometime and be like, oh, actually people don't mind this style of football. And then those same 12 people, the crisis merchants, looked at the Brisbane-Collingwood game, which featured no defence. Like, none. Like, no. like no, no one... As soon as a ball went past you, you just didn't turn around. That was obviously an unwritten rule for that <laughs> game. They went, no, boys, if it gets past you, you're out of the game. Have to wait until they keep the goal. We'll bring it back to the centre and we'll start again. All the 12 crisis merchants came out and just lauded it. This is amazing. This is the way footy should be played. It's, it was free-flowing. There was pressure. There was no pressure. They kept on saying how much pressure there was on the pill. They kept on saying how, how, you know, how great the contest was. It was, it was training drills. The ball would be thrown up in the middle. Someone would win the clearance. They'd go on and kick a goal. They'd bring it back. They'd repeat that for two and a half hours. And there would be the occasional turnover and then a slingshot off halfback. Yeah. yeah. So between the two, I know which one I'd prefer to see more often. And that is the actual contest. The actual, you know, there's actually a battle going on. Mm. And we see that in po- pockets. And we'll talk about this probably at length in a bit. But I mm. think that the AFL media has lost perspective on their role as cultural leaders in this space that's what you have writers you have commentators and what they drive the story they drive the story there's there's no natural footy media narrative other than the results and they happen on a Sunday everyone knows them and it's like cool that's that's it there might be some suspensions there might be some injuries cool that's the natural narrative and then from there on there's a select few who are privileged enough to hold the mics and to hold the pens and they go cool what are we going to talk about this week oh the, the, the game's in crisis the scores are at its lowest point and I think they need to either change and go, what, what are the people actually getting invested in? What are the people interested in? Because it is their game, hence why we call this show The People's Game. And then kind of reflect that in, in their attempts to talk about footy. Mm. As opposed to saying, people want more scoring. No one said that. No one's actually saying that. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that, and you mentioned this to me the other night, there's, there's a responsibility in holding office as a football writer and sports journalists, and I just feel like on this particular issue, we are we're out we're a little bit out of touch.
So people's question is very, very simple, and I've actually called it the perpetual people's question. A, because the word perpetual is wonderful, and B, because this question seems to get asked very, very regularly. So it is actually a perpetual people's question. Um, the question is essentially, is the game cooked? And I think you've given us a really good segue into where I wanted to start this discussion, because for me, we're trying to have a discussion, but we don't know what good is. We don't know what we're trying to actually achieve when we talk about what we want from football. And I'm convinced that if you ask six people, you would get different answers. You, like, there's no real, like, consensus. And so my argument, and a lot of these discussions that the media have had, okay, yeah, the game's cooked. Okay, so what do we want it to look like? And then we can ask how we get there. I also want to know what the definition of cooked is. This year we're breaking attendance records at the grounds, mm-hmm. and we're breaking viewership records on screens, whether that's mobiles, laptops, televisions watching at the pub more people are talking about football more often watching football more often watching more games which might be the actual thing like but again it's like maybe it's just the like just the media who uh, who are sick of it because they see more games and they see there have been a lot of blowouts this year but that's just the discrepancy between the good teams and the bad teams and the early season draw we've had seven matches already hmm. we have we've had we haven't had that many games where we've had two top four teams play off because there's four of them and there's 22 rounds so hmm. you know Statistically, it's not going to happen very often where we get the two best teams playing off every time, except probably the finals, and that's going to happen later in the year. Don't don't worry too much about it. But I think it's not even the blowers that they're concerned about. They're concerned about these, mostly the good games. They're concerned about the games where it's been a, a low-scoring tussle, being like, oh, that wasn't very good footy. Oh, the the disposal rating is down. Has Have you ever gone to a football game, turned to the stranger next to you and been like, I'm disgusted that the kicking percentage is below 75%. No. I've gone, is there any bloody chance of any of these geezers hitting a target? But mm. I haven't given... Like, I don't go and feel the desire to hit the, like look the stats book up. Because that's been the argument. Intestine possessions are going through the roof. Uh, disposal efficiency is down, which makes perfect sense because if the contest goes up, it's harder to dispose effectively. Tackles are up, which apparently is bad. And uh, all this means that the game is cooked. So people are mm. fighting harder for the ball... And it's making the game worse. Well, my argument here, and this is when I... So firstly, low scoring means you're more likely to get a close game. Yes. Statistically and mathematically. Not that they're my strong points. But that means you end up with that sense of uncertainty and heightened emotion Mm. within the contest where you don't actually know who is going to win. So it lends itself to more close games than if we're potting scores of 150. If if one team kicks 150, it's very unlikely the game is going to be close just because there's more points. Mm. So the chances that they'll be distributed evenly is not equal. My second argument with pressure, congestion, tackling is that this actually serves to highlight high skill. Mm. And so the best players are still the best players. In fact, you probably look at them and go, they're better. Like you realise their skill more because they're being put under insane levels of pressure. And I referenced the Richmond-Collingwood game last weekend, which was the last game I went to where that was just a game where there were things to marvel at and it wasn't high scoring for three quarters. It was a blowout in the last because Richmond got a run on. But when you were looking at things like Pendlebury and the way that he was able to slow the game down around him and not be tackled, Martin doing the same, the handballs that Shane Edwards was throwing out of congestion, some of the stuff that Brody Grundy and Nan Curvis were doing in close as big men bowling people out the way, some of those things didn't even involve, involve stats. Mm. But there's something in that level of football that highlights good things. And to me, that game was a classic case of I'm watching two very highly skilled teams putting each under, un, put each, putting each under, under elite amounts of pressure and the best players here are standing out and rising to the top and then those that have lesser ability are clearly there. And that is why. That, I literally walked away from that. Game. I've seen some like 10 very good players play very good football today. Mm. And that's why my bum is on this seat. Correct. And people froth over finals football. They always use that as like a superlative and, and say, oh, that was great. That was great. It was finals-like pressure. It was finals-like intensity. But then they quote all those things that finals-like pressure is. Congestion, mm. low scoring, pressure acts, small but like momentous moments of like that have significant consequence to the narrative of the game. Mm. And then they say that at this point, Oh, no, that's bad if it happens in round seven. If that's yeah. happening in round seven, that's bad. But if it happens in, in the first round of finals, then that's amazing. But then teams get 
like GWS get destroyed mm. for being bruise free. They're like, you're not going to win finals. So no. what you're doing is irrelevant. It doesn't mm. matter how good you are when the days like you're flat track bullies. Flat track bullies is like, okay, we play really uncontested football. This is why Richmond got ripped to pieces and told that they had to go back to square one. And then they did it. And now they're getting ripped for shutting the game down. Mm. Which... For destroying the game. Well, it's bollocks. Because you're talking about a team that, A, has the least amount of disposals to goals in the competition. Super efficient. Moves the ball incredibly aggressively. Will willingly kick, as well. Will willingly kick the ball to contest and then back themselves to win that contest, which is what we supposedly want to see more of. But people getting that example into there, and this is why football is going poorly, that doesn't actually make sense. Because if you look at Richmond's game plan in its entirety, it's not a defensive Game no. plan. It's hyper aggressive. Well, it's very good at both. It's just good at both ends. They're mm. number one in defense and they're number one in attack. And don't I know it? Mm. So the other thing that often gets brought up is people saying there's not enough high marks. There's not enough one-on-one contests. Again, like like no one ever references the kicking efficiency at the ground as an influence on their enjoyment of the game. Do you go to a game and be like, oh, what's my thoughts on this game? I really hope there's going to be 27 high marks today. I really hope it's going to be like lots of one-on-one contest. No, you just want to see a good game of footy. And as we said, it's very hard to define what that is other than you walk away from it and you go, that made me feel good. Essentially, these people are going, we want footy to be played like it was, depending on what their actual age is, back to when I was watching footy all the time, essentially. So Danny goes back to when he plays. He wants, he wants footy to be played like the 80s. Yeah. And, and you, you referenced an article in, in our notes beforehand saying that like he's lost his love for the game. Essentially, what he said, though, is, we don't play football like I played football. Which is just a, yeah. which is just a very strange well, thing to say, because it's like, well, yeah, but we, you don't, because they've all evolved. When well, there's natural evolution playing, in every yeah. sport, isn't there? Correct. What did, what did you expect to happen? Like, let's, let's, let's make this professional, let's pay the players, and then let's get annoyed when they're more fit and more able to tackle, and when every team in the competition is looking for ways to get better. That, like, if you turn a game professional, you're going to end up with that. Like, what are they going to do? Oh, you know what? Let's stop all the teams doing preseason running. Like, let's not let them start until March. Like, really? So what's your take on thoughts that the coaches have destroyed the game? Like, so again, it comes down to like, the professionalism of the game. But are the tactics ruining the game? Do the players have to think about tactics too much? Is it too complicated for these poor little AFL players that can't understand what a, what a zonal press is or anything like this? It's, that seems to be the excuses made, that skill level has gone down which, again, I, I don't really agree with. I think the skill sets have probably changed a little bit. And goal kicking, it does look a bit, yeah, skill if at the moment, but I think that will, that will rectify itself over time. But, yeah, are there too many strategies, too many tactics? Has the game been hijacked by tacticians and not allowed to let, let the boys play? I don't think hijacked is the right way of describing it because even in the 20s, there was strategy. And, like... Yes, okay, the coaches spend more time thinking about what's happening, but I still find that idea of there being multiple ways to arrive at the same outcome intriguing. It's not like golf, where what other people are doing has no impact on you. There's two moving parts in this. I think that in itself is something that I find inherently interesting about football. It It's dynamic. It constantly changes. There are so many different ways of trying to achieve the same end. And sometimes there's, a, there's nothing to me that's as pleasing as watching a game that is a complete contrast in style. In, mm. in We are going about this task in two totally different ways and one of us is going to win and one of us is going to lose. I, I find it like, I find that element of it intriguing. People might go, I oh, know it's overcoached. But like, how can it be undercoached? Like if you want nine games a week on TV and you want all of those things that you can watch it all the time, like what are we going to do? Not have full-time staff. Like, mm. clubs get chastised for... Bit. Like, no one wants their club to be unsuccessful. But then we're chastising the clubs for paying people to help make them successful. successful. And again, I think it just comes back... I think the most dangerous drug in sports reporting is nostalgia. And that's what you see all the time. You see, like, mm. BT always lend back to the fact that a, a forward will kick a goal and then be dragged off because it's his time for rotation. Well, guess what? That's what rotation's about because that way he can go and kick seven more goals later in the game as opposed to burning all his well, candles. That also shows a total misunderstanding. Mm. The easiest time to substitute is when a goal is kicked because nothing is happening. Correct, yeah. But having that player running off the ground at that point, you're not trying to set up anything. There's nothing. He, does not, he can have no impact on the ball. So that is just logic. Mm. 
It has nothing to do with the fact that he's just kicked a goal either. Like, you probably watch in most clubs and make four rotations when a goal's kicked. Because that's the time to do it. Yeah. Why the bloody hell wouldn't you? Okay, let's leave him on the ground another minute. And then when we need him to be in our defensive press, let's get him to come off and leave a gaping hole there so the team can go down the other end and kick a goal. Like, yeah, it's just a, a complete lack of understanding of how modern sport works. Mm. And I think that's what, that's, what, that's what ultimately needs to change from the commentators is is to have an appreciation of modern sport and stop making these comparisons to, to the bygone eras. Because, yeah, you, everyone... I suppose at the end of the day, the, the question they're trying to grapple is, is what, what is this game? Is footy still footy? So is the footy that was happening in the 1920s, the 1950s, the 1980s, the early 2000s and now still the same sport? Or has it changed so much that now it's unrecognisable? And that's the thing that I think people... Are, these people the crisis merchants are afraid of. They keep on saying we need to protect what's the core value of our game. What is the core value game of, of, of footy? What is, its, what, is its, what is its entity? What is, what is, it, what is it that makes footy footy? Well, other other to, than, well, other to than me, football, it's like the actual blatantly game. simple. Like, go out and kick more goals than the opposition. That, that is the central like, premise. That's the aim. Mm. So, you could, like I imagine if you gave people... Like, my argument is, if that's the task, how far away... Like, it can't differentiate that much. Like, people are making, this, making it sound like it's a totally different game, right? But if you gave two sets of people a way of going out and doing this, they would probably arrive at very, very similar points. So, a lot of suggestions have been made about how we can fix the game. I think that that conversation kind of says that it doesn't really need fixing. But do you think any of the suggestions... Our apt. Do they have any value whatsoever? Well, so not- the, the three obvious ones. Zones. Well, zones is the first. Everyone seems to hate zones. Everyone goes, oh, you can't, you can't, you can't restrict what the players want to do. And so this is the part that I find very confusing. So the crisis merchants say the game is, yeah, is yeah, the yeah, game yeah. is buggered. It needs fixing. And then one crisis merchant will offer a solution, and then the rest of the crisis merchants will be like, that's not football. But this so you'd be yeah. like, let's have zones. Zones are not football. Zones are netball. We cannot have zones in football. Okay, well, cool. Then how do you fix the problem of congestion? Can you do that accent again? If it is That's a problem. Brilliant. No, but you're right. And the problem, one of the problems I have with this is it's like, we want to, we long for what football, like it doesn't look like football anymore. It's like, okay, so let's go add some zones because that's going to really make it look like what it looked like in 1980, isn't it? Yeah. Like that, those two things, you can't have one and have the other. You're- and ironically, teams are already playing that. So like North Melbourne plays three isolated key forwards. And yeah, they do, and they, and they Richmond do it, and are doing, doing it. They do it quite well. Richmond do it as well. Right. And we talk about, you know, not having enough one-on-one contests. How often this year have we seen Fife roll forward, Dangerfield roll forward, Dusty roll forward, and have a one-on-one marking contest? It's like we ignore the things that are happening for the sake of the fake narrative well, they want to put. And also, that was something that came back. Like that was only that's only started happening. Like Richmond certainly only started doing it last year, mm. where they would literally leave Dusty in eighty yards of space with a poor bloody defender standing next to him. Like that has come back. And then look, the the stupidest thing about this is three weeks ago, it's like, oh my God, the bag is back. The bag is back. We're going to have forwards kicking bags. Bunny's going to kick Andrew. It's like, all right, guys. Great. Cool. Love it. And there was all this like, oh my God, it's so good. Nostalgia. And then two weeks later, footy's hooked again. And this is this is what doesn't make sense. And it's like, old mate Bristle, we have to have something to talk about. Like we, it's almost like, and we'll talk about this with the philosophy chat. Like we've, we always want a problem to solve as human beings. Like it's much, much harder to say, no, it's fine. Like, everything's good. And it's one of the things that I think is really interesting about coaching because there are times where, as a coach, you have to go, no, change nothing. Mm. And that's the that's actually a harder decision to make in a coaching box than to go, no, nah, we're going to do this and change this. Yeah, it's, it's harder to stick fat. And that's exactly the same with media narrative. It's harder to just sit there and go, no, actually, you know what? I'm really enjoying football. Mm. It doesn't great. give you that much to talk about, does it? Like, Well, I think it's just a, it's just a changing... A changing of perspective. Like this mm. show, most of it has been generally positive throughout mm. the yep. previous episodes. And we're generally pretty positive people. Correct. Usually. And there's nothing wrong. So there's, at the moment, there's this massive sensation going through the NBA where there's just like people love the NBA. You go on, the, there's, there's no like people love all the players, people love all the teams. They'll like a neutral just go watch a team for the sake of watching them and cheer them on because they do something good. I do that with Brisbane. And you know, it's not so, very successful. It's. <laughs> Yeah, they have a different approach to it now, and mm. it's a very, very modern and very youthful approach. So everything about that league has a has a youth focus. So mm. it's you know it's 
share all the content you want. There's no real. We're not going to like pull down your website if you share highlights. We're going to let people have more access to players, more mm. access to their personality. It's very different to how sport was run in the eighties and nineties. And so maybe that's maybe that's what needs to happen. And I suppose that goes back to who holds the cultural positions in football. Mm. Is you know for most for most part it is older people that have different values and kind of have been brought up to look for that negative. As as hard news writers, mm. hard news is often negative. So sixteen on the field. Sixteen on the field. What but, does it solve though? So the problem seems to be, for the moment, is congestion and bodies around the ball. If you take two two bodies out from each team, you've still got congestion. No, I don't think you. The problem is I don't think the coaches stop taking the same number of players around that pill. Hmm. Like they just take them from somewhere else. Yeah, you just take them from somewhere else. So you lose Dustin Martin stood in the goal square. Hmm. I would think would be what would happen. Yes. Um, and the other thing is, and this is why it's so hard to predict. Okay, let's put sixteen on the field. That then means that. Like, the positioning of one team is still reliant on the other. So it's not like one coach can just sit there and go, oh, let's ditch the wingers. Because if the other team doesn't ditch the wingers, guess what? Go play some wingers. They've got extra players elsewhere. Mm. And so there's always that element of it. Like, And so that makes it, I think, relatively difficult to actually work out what would happen. Yeah, I don't think it'd be any significant change. Which is weird, because that was like one of the praises for the solution. They're like, if you just had 16 players on the field... No one would even really know. If you didn't tell anyone, you'd leave the footy, you wouldn't even know. Well, then why change it? Yeah, exactly. If no one's seen indifference, then it's probably not going to be a great solution to the problem. Then and what did you think of uh, the BT The BT rant about uh, throwing the ball in quicker, balling it up quicker now because that, of the nominations? I had an inception moment there. My brain exploded. Because I totally agreed with BT. Yeah, the, the annoying thing about that... I was like, wow. Dad I, said that to me two days before, and then I heard BT crapping on about it. And I'm like... I completely agree with you. And I can't think of the last time I agreed with Brian Taylor on something. But that is 100% right. So it just two gives- things have come out in this, and I think this comes back to the profession- the professionalisation of the sport, is that umpires are under more pressure to make the right decision, make sure everything's correct. We have the nomination thing when it comes to rucks. Mm-hmm. We have the score review. All these things slow the game down. If you slow the game down, you give more con- more time to coaches to control with patterns and structure, mm-hmm. and then you get this stagnant game that apparently is existing. So Buckley came out and said if the umpires just blow more holding the balls, more free kicks for tacklers, which we want to see of, we want to see more people with more intensity. So reward the tackler, reward that skill, reward that effort, boom, you got to clear it out because they get a free kick and then they kick it. Yeah, but the argument here is like... And then here with the yeah. throw-ins is that if you just if you just throw it in quicker and, lo- and use it hopefully deeper into the field, it gives less time for people to structure up and to, to clog to clog. Yeah, up and ball. players can't get to that contest. So what I what I don't understand though is that two years ago we were really upset about the third man up. So that's what happens if there's not enough if there's not enough time to you know nominate who the ruckman is, then you get someone coming in over the top. Surely the solution there is you just if a, if a team has two rucks and one team has one ruck, a team that has one ruck gets a free kick. Hmm. You don't really need to nominate. No, I, I mean I think that that is one very. I, the thing that I think has come out of this is that I think the solutions are simpler than people think. Everyone's hmm. looking for this grand like exotic change. Let's do this. Let's do something radical. And then everyone's like, no, let's not do something radical. It's like, the solutions are actually painstakingly simple. Pay more free kicks around stoppages. Um, so be stricter on what we have. Maybe just take prior opportunity even a little bit closer. Mm. Like, And just throw the bloody pill up quicker. And then players can't get there. Bugger it if the Ruckman can't get there. Like, that'll reward Ruckman who are more fit. Which is inherently what you want you want the good players with good aerobic capacities to thrive and they'll have more space around the contest because they get there quicker so yeah I mean I don't really feel that um, this is a classic case of what old mate Wilbur would say mate nothing is either good or bad but thinking makes it so and I think that this is just like it's an easy fix if it needs to be fixed and I still don't think it's that cooked because like congestion as we said last week has been an issue since the beginning of time Well, Book Club, I'm not going to lie, like, this is just a wonderful magazine edition. I want to spend the rest of my life with this. Wow. It's great. It's so good. And I, and I, the, the quote that I sort of leads this conversation is that an hour of play reveals more than a year of conversation. Anonymous said that. However, um, there were so many just wonderful pieces in this, and I think we're going to delve into a few of them. Um, where did you want to start? My favorite quote was mm. from a piece by Emily Rao. 
And uh, the quote is, at the heart of sports is a paradox. It is serious and non-serious. It is important but trivial. It is of, of the ultimate value and of no value at all. Which is, again, why we have conversations like this. Like, is footy cooked? Well, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Well, no, but it does because it matters to me and the millions of people that are involved in it and who watch it and all of that. And especially the, the added tones, I suppose, that come to this, and this is where one of the pieces really hit the nail on what the paradox currently is for the AFL, is that where does, where does professionalism allow you to still play? Yeah, that was the Ed Smith piece. Yeah. Ed Smith is an absolute gem. He's possibly... He's probably my favourite thinker, almost. Mm. Like he's just his piece was sensational, and so at the crux of that piece is: do we want sport to be about the result or about the the playfulness that happens during the game? And I suppose that's that's the heart of the problem mm. is that people say that there is there is a need or there is an obligation to coaches to make the game look pretty. Really, mm. the only the coach's only job. And when, they, when the CEO hires them, is that they win games of footy mm. and hopefully championships and titles and cups. And so now, where where's the playfulness go? Is it, is it incumbent mm. on the players to be playful? Is it is it say, oh, I know I should uh, I should get off this handball because that's the right decision. But if I take on three players, then do a three sixty and then snap it over my head, that well, that would be that would be more fun, mm. wouldn't it? Well, the quote in this was another Shakespeare quote, which was that if all the year were playing holidays. Sport would be as tedious as work, which is essentially like sport is now work for the players. Mm. It's their job. They're there full time, which is kind of what the premise of this piece is. It's very hard to remember the playfulness inside you and why you fell in love for the game in a heightened and professional era, which is why you see some players that are so loved, like Eddie Betts is loved because he's naturally playful on the field and you can just imagine Eddie Betts at training snapping the ball from the pocket and delighting in it Um, but I think that's almost the fundamental issue with professional sport is it's now become work for everyone involved like the coaches Mm. as you say the thing I did love about this piece is like just describing I find that one of the greatest pleasures in anything in life and sport is part of this is just getting lost in a very simple task like, there's nothing as fun. I used to have the ball on the string when I was a kid and the cricket bat and used to just, like, hit that ball over and over. Like, and that was just... There's something wonderfully, like, therapeutic about that monotony. It's like the golfer who goes and hits balls for, like, five hours. Mm. It's brilliant. Like, being able to get lost in just playing. My favourite quote, if I really wanted to get a ball into a cup, I would put it there in the most efficient way possible. I wouldn't try to do it with a thin bit of metal. But that kind of is just such a wonderful summary of like sport because like, and I said this, you've basically created a problem so that you can solve it. And I guess the outtake from this is that as humans, A, we need something to garner meaning in life. So we have sport and because it gives us identity. It's like I'm a Richmond supporter, not a Collingwood supporter. And it also inherently we are problem solvers. This is why I like coaching because every week you get a problem and every team you look at is a new problem and you've got to pick your way through it. It's really easy to get lost in that. And I know that players don't necessarily sometimes don't think like that but inherently sport is a problem like and it's a problem to be solved and that's why people are so i think in love with it like because as she says you could literally rather than going to play golf for five hours you could walk around the golf course and just walk to each hole and put the ball in it yeah and go i put the ball in the hole and it'd be no fun at all i achieved the objective yeah yeah like it'd be no fun at all and i think that's what you get you get lost a little bit there's a really interesting week themed themed week on the ringer about what is lost Inefficiency, mm. and they went through all this, all the American sports, and their their scale of professionalism is much longer than ours in Australia. And they went, what have, they, what have you lost by focusing so much on, you know, how do we how do we do this task as efficiently as possible? And so it's things like we, you know, we lose multi-positional players in baseball now. Like everyone is so so skilled at their one task in the baseball mm-hmm. that they, they don't have pitchers who are also outfitters who are also batters. And when they do happen, and it's happening now, everyone loses their mind because it's so incomprehensible. Yeah, because Babe, Babe Ruth used to pitch. Yeah, if he used to Much pitch. lost. And then, and so now we have a, a pitcher fielder batter who's just tearing up. Everyone's like, how is this even possible? But if you look back 50 years, that was everyone. The next piece I want to talk about was a mm. republication of David Foster Wallace's piece about Federer. Oh, this was, I frothed this. And so I think this is the part... When, when people who control the footy narrative want to look for things to write about, we have players who, especially now, who are, you know, 
they're, they're the once in a generation, if not once in, in football history type players. And so his piece about Federer is just talking about watching Federer play tennis is almost like a religious experience for him. He has a metaphysical reaction to watching Federer play tennis because the way he does things yeah, 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 yeah. and how differently he does it to other players. Mm. And so we see this, like, again, like a lot of the, the famous Damon Harwick interview now in the preseason was like, I would pick a player who can tackle before they can, who can, who can t- kick. And it's like, okay, that's, that's where the coach is going with this task. It's like, how do I solve yeah. this problem? I want pressure acts. I want pressure players. Mm. But amongst this very, you know, role-driven professional environment, we have players like Buddy Franklin and Nate Fife mm. who can do these, you know, metaphysical acts. Like, no one... Like, watching Buddy get the ball on the halfway line, look at his direct opponent and be like, I'm going to out-sprint you for 30 metres and then I'm going to rake this ball 60 and no one else even think to do that. Like, no one gets taught to do that. No one gets told to do it. It's a very bad idea, probably, mm. if you're not Buddy Franklin. But watching him do it, you're like, wow. And it's like, that's why I, I don't even care who wins now. I saw that, and that was amazing. Yeah, and I remember games like that. There was one game that the Swans lost, which was the grand final rematch in round two last year. And I remember Buddy did that, like, three times. Mm. Right in front of us. And I'm just like, no, no. Like, you'd go to just see that, like, once. Mm. And that's the beauty. And the other thing I loved about this piece was it explains the ability of remarkably amazing athletes to make the game look like it's slow. And mm. nothing has actually changed in the speed of the ball. All that's changed is the player's reaction. Because when, when you like, and particularly in cricket and particularly in tennis, when you actually outline how they come up with the reflexive motion that they use to hit that ball, it's like mind-boggling. But I love that the description of Federer and the description of Steve Smith and sometimes the description of someone like Pendlebury is that they have time. Like, the mm. game slows down around them, which is not right. All that changes is their acting on that time and their ability to move quicker than everyone else. And I described him in a piece last week about Pendlebury as, like, he's a Neo from the Matrix sort of character. Like, mm. he actually... And he actually, in some ways, does have a little bit of superhuman comparative to the others on the field, which is why it looks like that. And so they're the things that are lost on TV and... Uh, Dave I Foster think Wallace that was a really good part that, of the piece. Mentions that it's like you you can't really appreciate Federer from television. Well, I and so right is, there. is the same applicable for footy. Well, I when I think about the majority of football games that I watch closely, I have to be there. I mm. think now, like I, unless it's Richmond or it's a very significant final, for me to genuinely get lost in a neutral game, and I'm talking like phone down, not doing anything, not doing work. Not writing notes, just get lost in it. I, I find that really hard to do on TV. Comparative to being there, where I'm happy, like the Geelong Hawthorne game on Easter Monday was totally engrossing. Um, and even a game that's like not all that close is very easy to get lost in live. But I don't enjoy the game anywhere near as much on TV. Mm. And you don't, you don't see anything either. And so like when people no. talk about all the problems that people are bringing up, to go back to the to the crisis merchants is I think problems with the TV product. So yeah, repeat stoppages and congestion is a bit dull to watch on television. Mm. But you're at a, when you're at a game, you get like just all all the all the extra detritus of a live experience. You get things like the crowd is yelling out ball, even though it's not. That adds to like the heightened mm. anxiety of what's the next. What's yeah. the next stoppage going to allow? There's, there's always going to be two kind of sides of that coin and you being there live to experience that goes, oh, actually, this actually isn't grossing despite the fact that, mm. you know, it's a repeat stoppage or it's congestion. Yeah. So I think we because the money is made from the sport is on TV, everyone has a focus on TV, Much more people experience it on TV than they see it live. I think that's where the focus is going. But I think you can only really appreciate a sport properly. You can only really appreciate anything properly if you're there with it. Like, so you can actually give mm. something to it and take something away. Yeah, and you also, you get all of that. You get every sense involved. Mm. It's not just I'm watching this on a TV. You've got everything. You can smell the pie. Well, hearing people write and revere Federer in the way that they do and his skills, I feel like we should revere more athletes in a similar way because I think there are people who, in AFL, for example, are just as remarkable and don't get the amount of time that Federer does purely because they play a team sport. Yeah. Yeah, and I think again, like team sports, there's there's a depersonalization of players. 
Like, you know, he just become the Richmond player, the cog in the Richmond machine. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, you know, if you play an individual sport, you are the team. It is all it. about you. Yeah. Uh, and finally... The club a, identity piece. Yeah, there are a couple of pieces on tribalism. Um, Did you read the Orwell piece? I've read it previously. Well, yeah, so I had a bit of a, a dizzy at that. But there was also the Clarissa Sabag Montefiore piece. What are your thoughts on that? Both how heavily do you identify as a human with your club and how serious do you get about it? Do you join, do you join the tribe? Do you buy into the oil part that sport is, sport is war without guns? Do you buy into that mob, like the dangers of that mob mentality or is it actually like the cathartic release that you need? I think he kind of says that there's a need for it, doesn't he? Hmm. I think I behave in a way at football games that I would very rarely behave in real life. I would very rarely look at a person that I have never met, stand up, and tell him he's a goddamn wanker. Yeah. While pointing at him and spitting, not because I'm spitting, but spittle flying out of my mouth because I'm angry. I don't think I would, I would never do that to someone on the street. Mm. Whereas I have done. And it is such a bizarre thing to do when you think about it in isolation. Yeah. yeah. To go up, like to just walk past someone in different colours to yours like, and go, I really dislike that person because yeah. they barrack for that team. How much of your identity. Like you are a very avid Richmond fan, despite not watching their game this weekend to get a tattoo. So maybe it's wavering. Maybe but how it is. much? But how much of your identity is made up of your fandom to your club? Well, it's one of the main reasons I want to live in Melbourne, because because football is here. That's probably not a specific Richmond thing, but um, yeah. And I, I think it's also like psychologically, and this is the same with any sport that, that does form a big part of your identity. And always does like I identify like it doesn't take long for people who talk to me to work out that I'm a Richmond supporter. Like it usually comes up pretty quickly. Yeah, I have said before that it's my opening line on Tinder. It's not, but if someone is a Richmond supporter, it's like tick tick. Yeah, because yeah. you know that Dad's going to like them mostly, which is generally the water cooler test or the test. But yeah, no, I think it is a big part of it's a big part of what you do, and like you invest so much in it, and you've watched it for so long that you can't not care and have heightened emotions about it because it strangely enough does have a dramatic impact on your mood Mm. um the same as being involved in a sport and losing and winning has a dramatic impact on your mood which when you think about it is weird like i I watch a team people i've never met any of the people that are doing this but they went out into a field and they like kicked less points than the other team and now i'm upset about it because they did a task that someone designed worse than another group of people but it's also the and the, this is where the tribal instinct and the tribal thing is so important and this is sort of leans to like someone posed the question one day at the pub as to why people like football Australian rules who never like soccer and some people like baseball and some people like NFL and some people like basketball and the general like consensus that we arrived at was that for the majority of people most people have a sport that they were heavily invested in as a kid because it's usually the, the, the sport that you used as a family thing the sport that you used to make friends, the sport that provided you with a social community, etc. And that is why people are not so much drawn to the actual code or the problem, but the experience that it gives you, which mm. is why tribalism is so powerful. And I think that's why kind of what George Orwell describes is kind of correct. People are drawn into that because it gives them so much. Yeah, which I find interesting because I've never had a strong tribal relationship with any sport. So most of my sports, like whilst I'm a Richmond fan, that's more just like... Me grandpa said you're a Richmond fan. I was like, cool, thanks, grandpa. This team. No, you're not as fanatical as me. Pretty, pretty rad. But um, but I am like fanatical about sports. A because I love that problem solving aspect. I'm a massive sports nerd. I want to know about the minutia of tactics. I want to know about the revolution of mm. working out how teams are good and which, which teams are better. I also marvel in that play. I'm a player first. I'm almost like a sports agnostic. Like I don't I. I follow teams in the American sports based on where my favourite players go because their movement is so mm. so continuous. And Glenn Maxwell. And Glenn Maxwell. So I have Glenn Maxwell in cricket. I don't really have one in, in footy. I just like footy in general. And I think that's more because, you know, in, in the community I am currently, most of my friends are mad tribal footy fans and I like talking footy with them. Yeah, but you're not a mad tribal footballer. But, I'm not, but I've not. never found you. No. It took me a while to realise that you went for Richmond. Yeah. Which is strange, because as we've said... Because most usually, people go, yeah, I'm, I'm a Richmond It's happy. usually my first judgment mm. of people. But that's why I like, especially love that David Foster Wallace piece, is that you get, you get... I find more appreciation for the actual... The player, and the player in the sense of 
their playfulness, but mm. also the player as in they are the actor in this story. Every every yeah. match is a story, every match is a narrative, and they are the protagonist. And mm. so when Glenn Maxwell succeeds, it gives me joy because I've, I've bought into his character. When he fails, it brings me sorrow because, I've, again, I've bought into his character, mm. and it, that's how a narrative affects me. The same way that people like art or they like movies and that kind of thing. And that's why my friends that don't like sport ask me and that's the reason I give them. Mm. They actually understand that a lot more than, oh, Richmond means so much to mm. me. Because yeah. like Stranger Things doesn't mean that, like, that much to them. But they, the experience they get from watching Stranger Things does. Yeah, and I agree with kind of everything you said because I still see football in a similar way and a lot of sport. But I also think that all the sports that I've had a deep relationship with and I say that because there's some of these that have been, they've lasted longer than others. Richmond is a geographical obsession, but I had a, a long-standing obsession with Blackpool, the Premier League club, mm-hmm. when we were Premier League. We're not anymore. But that was bound up because it was something that Dad and I did together. Yeah. And the reason I liked baseball was because we supported the Giants and it was what Dad and I did together. And I think that's, the family element is the common denominator. Although, as like you, I can appreciate all of the different intrinsic tactical natures and nouses of the different sports but yeah you're an unusual well you're an unusual person but you're an unusual sporting fan as well I think all in all I think go if you're a sports fan or a philosophy fan or just like a good read pick up the latest edition of The New Philosopher I 100% agree with that sentiment free plug So time, everyone's favourite segment, oh, um, Benno's Bants and Rants. We haven't got a rant this week. Well, actually, have I got a rant this week? Well, the whole thing was a rant, really. The whole thing? We, last we, week. No, no, we ranted the whole episode so far. Well, this is, yeah, you're right. I, I do love a good rant, though. Yeah. And we are going to make this a consistent segment. Yep. The segment is called I Swallowed Bruce McAvaney's Briefcase. Okay. Because as a kid, this is what people used to say about me. Oh, like, wow. You, you, I Swallowed Bruce McAvaney's Briefcase. That's high praise. It was partly because in year four maths... I used to be able to recite the Melbourne Cup form guide and tell my teachers who was going to win oh, and wow. various other things. And they actually thought I was a gambling addict in the fourth grade, which is kind of true because we did used to have some betting markets running in the playground wow. in, in the fifth grade. And you know about our obsession with dice cricket. We do, yes. Which was big. Anyway, so this week's little tidbit, and there's a, probably another way of phrasing this, is this is stuff if you ever go to a really football-orientated quiz night, you want to know. Um this is about VFL-AFL protests, Gordon okay. Hunter Meredith. And there have only been... How many of these have there been in history, Gordon? I bet you can't guess. Three. There's been three. And the little little interesting thing here is that they have all involved the St Kilda Football Club. And I think this conversation comes at a really interesting time because, well, St Kilda could do with a bit of protest on some of their results now. Um, I guess the pseudo-fourth, although it doesn't really relate to one game, would probably be Essendon being removed from the finals. But I guess it wasn't really a protest. It just paved the way for Richmond to lose to ninth, which probably made it valuable for the rest of the sporting world and Richmond supporters, really, because it made everything more satisfying when it came to fruition. So the first one, and this is a little tidbit for St Kilda fans if you don't know this, was actually St Kilda's first win in the VFL. So St Kilda were, you know, you think they're bad now, um, and they are, but they didn't win a game uh, before the century turned. So they didn't win a game in 97, 98 or 99. They did win some games in the VFA. Had 42 consecutive losses, ladies and gentlemen. That's before... not that bad, really. Sorry, but when have you been involved in a team that had 42 consecutive losses? But like, they're like, like, and no, it's not professional, but like, there are club, club footy, like footy clubs out there in local footy land that are like racking up 100, 150 straight losses. Mm. And this wasn't really professional because it was early days. And St Kilda were only invited into the VFL because they had a nice ground. It was one of the, one of the reasons. One of the criteria. One of the criterion. Anyway, so the, the general story is that um, St Kilda played Melbourne at the Junction Oval and the score was 10 8 to 9-13-67, which was originally 9-14-68 to Melbourne. Um, the result wasn't decided on the day, which meant that after those 42 consecutive losses... St Kilda didn't even get their happy changing room vibes and beers. Um, but at least they didn't make them play the game again as a replay. Um, so basically, Melbourne kicked a goal after the siren at three-quarter time, which was wrongly allowed to stand. Basically, the mark was taken after the siren. Yeah. And the umpire hadn't obviously blown the whistle. They had the shot at goal. St Kilda protested and five days later were awarded their first VFL win. 
It didn't do them much good because they only won that game for the year. They didn't get to celebrate it properly, and then they finished the year with a percentage of 39.13, which basically means that they were woeful. So the second one was... And this is kind of like there'll be some amateur sporting clubs that are really happy about this because essentially St Kilda buggered up and they were docked points against Geelong because they played an ineligible player. So uh, Mr W Stewart was suspended by the Bendigo Association. Um, The Saints opted to play him anyway in Melbourne the following weekend. The plot twist in this is that at the time they decided to play him, his sanction hadn't been handed down. So the St Kilda football club asked Charlie himself, yes, Mr. Charles Brownlow, um, whether they were entitled to play him. Like, so they sought verbal permission. And the Argus basically reported that Mr. Brownlow said that if you play Stuart, you do it at your own risk. So St. Kilda ended up winning the game by a point. So 6-12-48 Geelong were defeated by St. Kilda 6-13-49 at Corio Oval. And Geelong then protested and the result was overturned. The most notable and most recent 97 years on from the last game that was decided via protest was Siren Gate number two, which happened between Frio and St Kilda. And this time, Frio were awarded the four points, 13-15-93 to 14-10-94. And this, I suppose, is one of the greatest controversies we've had in modern football. Um, Because this this game was a giant shamal because the umpires didn't hear the siren and... It basically went on for 10 seconds. Stephen Baker had a shot at goal, which leveled the game, but then was awarded a free kick after having his shot at goal because he was pushed late. So he had the choice of kicking again to kick a goal, and he took that shot. It just meant the behind was scrubbed off. So he then kicked another point. So the game was still drawn. Um, Freo obviously walked into League HQ and went, we're not copying this. Um, Their coach, Chris Conley, went bonkers on the day. And in the end, they were awarded the four points and common sense prevailed because it was bleedingly obvious in the television era that the umpires had just not heard the siren. Um, what I love is this game was at Launceston between St. Kilda and Fremantle, who don't have particularly big fan clubs anyway. But um, when you played in Tasmania, that's neither their home grounds. The excuse the umpires gave was that they couldn't hear the siren over the raucous crowd. 15,000 people. 15,000 people. Mm, I love it. The interesting little incidental thing about this is this also happened in 1962 where Carlton essentially punched a behind at Brunswick Street Oval after the siren and after the umpires had failed to hear the siren. So they won the game out of benefiting from that point. But Fitzroy didn't protest the result. So the result just stood. Despite the fact that the league requested that Fitzroy install new sirens at the ground. So, I haven't looked into that one deeply, but I have absolutely no idea why they didn't protest, having been asked to install new sirens at Brunswick Street Oval. That's a very interesting, like, AFL's not wrong, but will change the protocol, as what happened with the score review on Sunday. So, they had the score review issue with the the, the, the Kangaroo-Sydney game. The touch that was touched, but everyone, thought, everyone saw it was touched except for the umpires, and then they didn't do the score review. And then everything was score reviewed on Sunday. They went, no, nah, bugger it, we're going to have a score review every single goal. So, a classic moment. It's been happening forever, since the 60s. The AFL is never wrong. We may change things as a result of our wrongness that was not actually wrong. That pretty much... Brings us to a natural closure. Brings us to a very natural closure. Thank you so much once again for joining us. I have certainly enjoyed talking about why the game's not buggered. Yes, and if you want more The Game's Not Buggered content this week on Sporting Chance magazine is, of course, Crisis, What Crisis Week. Well, we'll be talking the game up, cutting the crisis merchants down and giving you plenty of footy positive, yeah, yeah, good footy vibes for your eyeballs, your earballs and your fingertips. So head on over to sportingchancemag.com and uh, check out the content there. We'll be doing it all for all is. Experts. My name's experts. We're all my name's experts.